Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction, and I'm Rob Wolf. And even though I'm recording this in my home studio, like I always do, it all feels very different, mainly because the world outside the room feels so different. COVID-19. That's going to be Time's Person of the Year, I bet. Or the Word of the Year, or maybe COVID-19 will be our next president. Anyway, the pandemic is serious business, depressing and scary at the same time, but maybe I can cheer you up because my guest today has written a book that is about as far from COVID-19 as possible. It's about a yellow stuffed triceratops named Tippy, and he's a detective, and he can solve almost any problem. That will be a question. Can he solve COVID-19? The human behind Tippy, the guy who has the chutzpah to hang his debut novel, The Imaginary Corpse, on stuffed animals, or a stuffed animal and many other imaginary creatures, is Tyler Hayes, and he's on Skype with me now from his home in Northern California. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I usually give each episode a humorous title, and I didn't think of one this time. Well, I asked you on the show before the coronavirus lockdown, but now it feels like the perfect book at this moment because what we're going through feels so surreal, so out of the ordinary, just like Tippy the Triceratops. Huh, nice segue. Well done, A+. plus. Thank you, thank you. So your book is a great escape, and after a few weeks on lockdown, who doesn't want an escape? So thank you for writing the book that I really needed right now. Oh, you're very welcome. You're not the only person who said that to me, and it means the world every time I hear it. Oh, good. I'm glad. The book is a detective story and plays with a lot of the tropes of the genre, but it's also like no detective story I've ever encountered. So why don't you tell our listeners about it? Sure. So, yes, uh, like you said, it is a, it deliberately playing with a lot of noir and hard-boiled tropes. Um, but filtered through a very whimsical kind of childlike is the wrong word, but a very whimsical, very emotionally raw lens. Um, and something I consciously did when I was writing this was uh, I wanted to reject sort of the the nihilism at the heart of hard-boiled and noir, the whole forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown kind of attitude that you can't actually beat the status quo that the man will always reassert their dominance over uh the people uh etc um it was something i really worked to make it a much more hopeful book a book where the detective is not mired in his own moral failings a book where at the end he has actually made things better no spoilers there but uh but yeah that was a goal with writing it but you must be a fan of the noir genre to want to comment on it in this way. Yes, absolutely. I'm a huge Raymond Chandler fan, as problematic as he can be. I also like Dashiell Hammett. Uh, in I enjoy uh, Mickey Spillane and Jim Thompson. 
Um, I'm mostly a sci-fi and fantasy guy, but noir has always been kind of my other love outside of the SFF genre. Well, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about Tippy? Because as you pointed out, he's very different than your typical noir detective. Sure. So uh, telling you about Tippy will also mean telling you a little bit about the world Tippy lives in. So Tippy himself is a plush yellow triceratops um, who is also a detective. He came to life as a little girl's imaginary friend. And one of the conceits of the book is that if an idea is invested with enough love and enough need and enough importance by the person who thinks it up, it can become real, not literally manifest in our world, but it is invested with a life beyond its creator. Tippy is one of those. Uh, he was so important to the little girl who dreamed him up that he gained this greater amount of substance, this capital R real quality. And uh, he is all, he is also a victim of trauma, as is the little girl who birthed him, as it were. They both went through a terrible trauma, which is explained in the book. I assure you there is no trigger warning for assault or anything there. It's just a tragedy. And so Tippy wound up in the still real, this sort of alternate dimension, the kind of underbelly of the imagination where ideas that have become real, but that their creators don't cling to anymore for one reason or another, end up to live out their existences. And that is where Tippy does his detecting and where the book is set. And the still real is kind of this in-between place, I guess, because at one point you describe it, or I think Tippy's actually describing it and says, as you say, it's the underbelly of the imagination, the place of ideas too real to fade away, too anonymous to go big, and too messed up to stay where we are. We're a patchwork of places, a population of emotional refugees. And interestingly, these fanciful characters and the characters in the still real can be anything. There's a disembodied hand. I think there's a bunch of marbles at one point that come in from the yes, the kingdom of marbles. I think yes. I, I, the kingdom of living marbles is a small as a small supporting role. Yes, very small role, but still just the idea that there are these marbles that come in with their own uh, separate identity. And each town has a different moon. So it seems very fanciful. And yet underlying these characters, there, in many cases, it seems some kind of trauma. And I guess it's because all of them had an inventor, had someone who engendered them with love, and then who basically abandoned them. So maybe that trauma always is connected to that abandonment. Yes. Um, so they are not all ne by necessity trauma victims, though pretty much everyone who takes front and center in the first book, or in this book rather, is. But yeah, it is all of them have, have been poisoned in some way for their creator, was my intention. Something that their creator went through meant that they could no longer reconcile their reality with this idea that they had dreamt up. So Tippy is a detective and he has his own agency. It's a one Triceratops agency. Yes. And the novel focuses on probably the hardest case he's ever had. Yes. Why don't you say a little bit about what the case is? Sure. So I don't want to give away uh, the exact inciting event, but what he winds up dealing with, uh, his normal, as weird as it is, gets interrupted by a new idea, a new, uh, they call themselves friends, if they are, you know, sentient walking around ideas a new friend 
who turns out to be able to permanently kill other ideas, which previously everyone had thought was impossible. Uh, they had thought that in the still real ideas don't truly permanently die. Um, that all of them, depending on where they come from, you know, they're either just unkillable or they kind of, you know, undergo a tragic end, but come back at some set point later, or they're a video game character and they just, you know, restart back at the start of their day or something like that. And so this is someone who actually just erases someone from the still real and Tippy finds himself dealing with rather than his usual whodunit. He's really dealing with more of a how done it and a why done it, um, where he does not understand what this friend wants, why this friend is doing this, or how this friend is doing this. And that's really what he's trying to parse out, while at the same time also trying to uh, prevent further casualties from mounting. So the characters are all, in a way, trapped by certain personality traits, by things that their creators bestowed them with. Like, Tippy is a detective because the little girl who thunk him into existence, Sandra, made him a detective. Yes. And everyone is to some extent like that. Like, they have, if they have some magic power, it's because their creator wanted them to have it and gave it to them. Mm -hmm. How much freedom do they have to move beyond that? And how do you see that paralleling the limits we all have, you know, the limits that we that we have having been raised a certain way. I mean, we're all that's always the struggle. Like, how much free will do we have? Are there parallels there? Oh, there are definitely parallels. Um, the degree to which these ideas are stuck permanently with those personality traits and the degree to which they can move past them is very much an open question. A lot of them are stuck out of a mix of this is what my creator made me and therefore um, I cannot be anything else. For some of them, it's also a certain amount of these are the parts of myself I recognize and therefore it is hard for me to move past them or change them because who am I without them? I already have this incredible loss that I am dealing with. Why would I want to lose more? Um, is kind of what is driving a lot of them. Um, and especially Tippy. Like, Tippy really strongly has some character traits that he knows are causing him trouble, that he, you've, you've read the book, that he says he knows I, you know, I shouldn't have done that or it wasn't my best, the best way I could have handled this situation. But he doesn't really know how to be otherwise as much as he might want to. So I know that was a little bit of a, of a mealy-mouthed answer, so let me say more definitively, my intent is certain things about them, they can move past. Which ones each individual friend can or cannot move past really depends on the individual. Some are more mutable than others, and some are more likely to progress than others. Um, you definitely, over the course of this book, there are a couple who clearly have gotten a little bit more outside their archetype than others have not not to ruin anything for people but officer cold whose name kind of gives him away becomes yes. a, maybe a little less cold for example 
Yes, uh, he's one. Um, there is a character who was – this won't spoil anything because I can keep it pretty vague. There is a character who was dreamt up as a villain, as a pure antagonist foil to another character who starts being a little more helpful and community-minded over the course of the book. So where did this idea come from and why did you decide to build a story around Tippy, a plush triceratops? So, um, this book is the byproduct of two things. Um, one thing from my childhood and one thing from my adulthood. Um, the thing from my childhood is I actually own a stuffed triceratops named Tippy. Um, he is in the other room. I did in fact get him from my father, just like the little girl in the book did. And when I was a little kid, kind of my recurring game of let's pretend was a game we called stuffed animal detective agency in which Tippy played a part. And of course it was a little, it was a little kid's game. So of course it was disjointed. There was no recurring plot. There was generally not even really a plot. I just kind of made up stuff and my dad and I did funny voices. And then eventually we got bored and I went and played Nintendo. I kind of always held on to that. And as I was getting older, I started getting nostalgic for it and thinking I'd love to do something with that someday. You know, I feel like that is something very me and very close to my heart that I can play with somehow, but how do I not just make it kind of a wacky Muppets take Manhattan comedy story and then the other thing i reconciled it with reconciled the other thing i combined it with in my adulthood was uh i also have i have ptsd mine is actually from a very bad car accident i won't get into the details but i just wanted to let people know where i'm coming from and what i realized as i started going through therapy in it much later in life um, it took me like a decade to actually get someone to diagnose me with ptsd and help me with it i had the realization that certain life experiences certain normal everyday things are kind of toxic to me now you know they are triggers and they are things that other people reasonably don't think about you know they're they're nothing that would even register in another person's day um, but for me, I have to build my whole day around them in terms of, do I have to deal with this trigger today? If I do, I need to make sure the rest of my day is low stress. I need to make sure I've got decompression time afterwards. You know, I need to be aware the whole time I'm dealing with the trigger so that I don't lash out or something like that. So I can work around those triggers most days, like six days out of seven, I don't have to deal with any of them, but I had the thought, what if what I was triggered by were more important to me, had been of import to me already when this trauma happened? Like the one that occurred to me was, what if I couldn't write anymore? What if somehow the act of creating fiction was now a trigger for me? And that kind of bone deep sorrow and that chill that went through me, I thought, wait, I think I've got something here. I think this is where I can put my imaginary ideas from my childhood into a story for adults and actually have something to say with it. Pardon me for being dense, but how does that overlap with, say, Tippy's character? Like, what's his... I mean, I know, for instance, Rain is traumatic to him because it connects to... Yes. ...the trauma. You're, you're not being dense. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so, Tippy's character... Uh, Tippy... I and Tippy both have bad associations with cars. Um, as a result of the accidents each of us were exposed to. So Tippy, specifically, his big trigger is rain. Though he is also triggered by hearing sounds that he associates with car accidents. So breaking glass, buckling metal, 
tires squealing, that kind of thing, uh, can really freak him out and kind of get him deep in his feels. And so the idea with Tippy was that he is um, he is a child's idea of a noir detective at core, which is to say he is kind of idealized. You know, he is a much more heroic figure than your Sam Spades or your Philip Marlowe's. But also uh, he has these raw spots that he's dealing with and that he is not always dealing with well that sort of inform and complicate uh, his way of approaching cases. And he also loves root beer. That's his soothing. That's he, that's his very childlike way of uh, drowning his sorrows is going to exactly the, the root. Is it the root beerium or the root beer torium? It is the root beerium. Uh, it is Mr. Floats root beerium. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah. He, root beer was my, I, I, you know, of course I'm like, he's a noir detective, so he needs to have a little bit of a drinking problem. But I wanted it to be something, you know, a little kid would think of. Partially because I feel weird, like, I am not, I have not myself grappled with addiction in that way. And so I felt weird writing from that perspective, you know, trivializing it. And then I went, also, a little kid probably would think, oh, he's going to drink soda. So I went with root beer because root beer, beer, booze, you know, the, the, the bridge felt natural. So people listening to this who haven't read the book might think it sort of sounds like a kid's book because this detective Mm -hmm. is a toy and he drinks root beer and he has almost like magical detective powers. He gets a sense Mm -hmm. of something, you know, he doesn't always have to deductively solve things, although he does sometimes as well. But he Mm -hmm. also uh, just kind of gets a sense of like what's going on because he's imbued with that by the girl who created him. But it isn't a child's book. And when you read it, you realize it it isn't. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's the traumas, there's the maturity of their relationships and the character development. And I mean, some of the underlying traumas, I mean, you know, you've talked about car accident, but things get way more serious than that. There's reference to like what sounds like domestic violence and and things even more creepy and scary than that, which I I guess I won't be specific about. But I wonder how you navigated that. There's this there's this layer, this patina of, oh, it sounds like a kid's story. And certain things uh, sound like the moon in one of the towns, I think, where Tippy yeah. lives is made of cheese. And, yep. you know, and there is a kind of sweetness uh, to mm-hmm. Tippy's character. He's, he's always nice. Yeah. But there's also this incredible evil. So, I mean, there there's both. And it just seems like it doesn't quite fit anywhere, which makes it fit everywhere, maybe. I, I wonder how you feel about it and how, how you uh, manage to navigate this territory in writing it. Um, so, yeah, it was a really hard needle to thread. I won't lie. The way that I handled that was, uh, first of all, revision, 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 you know, is the key for every writer, I think, re- dealing with a difficult thing like this. But also, um, I, I set out from the beginning knowing this was a book for adults. And, you know, not to say that a kid can't read it if you're sure that your kid can handle some of the topics in it. But I kind of always took it as I'm not going to I'm not going to get graphic. I'm not going to get salacious because I did want, like you said, that sweetness and that comfort overlying it. And so I didn't want to go full Sin City, you know, put it right on the page. 
because also the other thing I thought of is with trauma, it is very rarely right on the page. It is very rarely that you, at least from my experience, I very rarely have actually specific detailed flashbacks to the events that traumatized me. I usually get more of a kind of inchoate reminder of some kind, and maybe I'll flashback a little bit. And so I wanted, that was another way I kind of handled that layer was I went, I want these traumas to feel real in that they are sometimes ephemeral in how they manifest in people. And therefore I don't need to go on for paragraphs about how uh, such and such character, their creator was being beaten by their spouse or such and such character has, uh, it, their creator is an assault survivor, that kind of thing. So was it hard to get it published? What's the publication story? What was the journey to publication? Because it's really a unique character's unique story that maybe doesn't fit so neatly in places that I think publishing often likes to slot things. So that was a challenge. Um, And as befits this kind of odd book, it has kind of an odd journey. So I was querying it the normal way and I was getting basically the reaction you're describing. You know, I was getting a lot of Uh, rejections that were, so this is great. You know, you're compliment, compliment, compliment. I don't know where I'd sell this. So I am not the right person to represent you. You deserve somebody who will know where this should go. And in the middle of all that, uh, Angry Robot Books had their, I think it's yearly, open door submission period where they would take unagented, unsolicited manuscripts. And I was in the process of the agent hunt and I went, well, it can't hurt. Um, And I threw the manuscript to Angry Robot. And I thought, you know, maybe off chance they say yes, but, you know, if they don't, I'm not worse off. And I went on with my agent hunt and again, kept getting almost there and being told, I don't know where I put this, you know, good luck. Um, And then one day I got the email from Angry Robot saying we absolutely loved this book we want you for our summer 2019 list. Um, here is your offer letter. Uh, and please feel free to go get an agent to negotiate this for you. Will you have the time? And so once I finished running around in a circle and screaming, uh, because, oh my God, it happened. I contacted the agents that I had, that had not yet rejected me that still had my manuscript. And one of them wound up giving me an offer. And that is my lovely agent, Lisa Abalera at Kimberly Cameron and Associates, who is who negotiated that sale for me. Fantastic. Wow. So an unagented manuscript gets accepted. I love stories like that. Thank you. Yeah, I was, I was tickled and I was surprised uh, because honestly it had been, it had not been outside the response window that angry robot gave, you know, as a possible window, but it had been, it was so f- close to the end of it that I had kind of put it out of mind. I had assumed it was a no and just, you know, kept moving on with my life. So to suddenly get the yes from them was stunning. And what are you doing now during this period of transition? I'm thinking of this as a, as a strange time in the culture and in the world, a stressful yeah. time, a stressful time, but I wonder what's going to emerge from it, both individually and culturally. I mean, myself, I'm wondering, you know, what I'm going to learn and am I going to be a different person when we're through this and hopefully not the worst for wear, you know, and, and as yeah. few people get sick as possible. But where are you where are you at with this and how are you spending your time during this uh, COVID-19 experience? Yeah, so I have my good days and I have my bad days. 
unsurprisingly, my trauma response is kind of elevated right now. I mentioned that PTSD. Um, so little things that normally don't get to me, but that are kind of mixed in with the trauma stew in my head will will start to get on top of me in a way that they probably wouldn't in a less stressful time. And most days I'm doing all right. I'm staying connected with people. Um, I'm ironically, I think, more social than I was before. Not in person. I'm sheltering in place. But, you know, I'm on way more video chats than I used to be. Um, I'm DMing and IMing and emailing a lot more than I used to. You know, I found myself reaching out way more. And a lot of that is me, you know, checking on my friends and just going like, are all of you all right? But it it's still interesting to feel more engaged, even as I can't really go more than a block or two from my house unless it's for something vital. In terms of how I'm spending my time, so I do have a pays the bills job, um, and that is filling, you know, the normal 40-ish hours a week. Um, so, and I, I'm very fortunate to have a job. I know that that is not the case for a lot of us. So I, I feel blessed in that regard. I'm also still writing. I can tell that the writing I am doing, I'm going to want to give, put, have a keen eye when I go to do revisions on it. Because without knowing exactly how, I can tell that the situation is affecting the words I put on paper or on in Microsoft Word, I guess, is, is more accurate. And that's been interesting because I can't quite identify exactly what's different. I'm not looking at it and going, oh, I would not have written this two, three months ago. But, uh, but definitely I can go, something about this feels different. And it's not just that I'm not writing about a triceratops. And are you writing short stories? That's what you had done since this is your this is your first novel. But before that, you'd published uh, a number of short stories. Yes, um, I have not been writing shorts lately, and that's purely out of not having anything that I want to write that is a short. Like I write down all my ideas as I have them, and just none of them have come to me that I've clicked and gone, "This is a short story." Um, but uh, I have done some flash writing, and I've been working on. I'm working on two novels. One I'm currently drafting. One is with my agent, and we're going to be talking about revisions in a week or two. Of course, the timeline's a little rubbery right now with everything. You said something about the imaginary corpse being the first book. Is that a clue? Are we to assume that there might be more? So uh, the keyword there is might. We I cannot get into the details of it, but it basically boils down to if this book does well enough, we are hoping for at least one more, but it is not set in stone, ink on paper, and so therefore, it being the world of publishing, I don't want to promise anything. But, you know, it's been getting, it's been kind of ramping back up. You know, I think you're right. I think that there are people who really needed this right now. And so I'm hopeful, which feels like the right adjective to associate with this book. <laughs> the, the choice to make the book kind was I think one of my biggest driving goals when I was writing it was just in it. I didn't necessarily start it that way. I didn't necessarily start writing it going, this book will be kind, but somewhere early in the process, I realized, no, 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 this is a kinder world than a lot of fictional worlds than often our world is. And I just really stuck hard on that, really on the idea of community, the idea of compassion, the idea of kind of empathizing and accepting people where they are. 
Well, maybe that's the best note to end on, on the thoughts okay. of community and kindness and yes. accepting people where they are, even if they're locked in their homes or mm. maintaining social distance. Yes. So thank you very much for coming on New Books and Science Fiction and for writing The Imaginary Corpse. You're, you're very welcome. Thank you for thank you for thanking me. It really means a lot. I've been speaking with Tyler Hayes about his debut novel, The Imaginary Corpse, which came out from Angry Robot last September. Yes. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. I'm Rob Wolf, and I produce and edit the show. The New Books Network was founded by the socially distant Marshall Poe and is scrubbed daily for 20 seconds by Leanne Wilson. Read, take care of yourself, the people you love, your neighbors, and everyone whose path you cross, because we're all in this together. I may be taking an extra week or two off, but you'll hear from me again soon. Until then.